Okay, welcome back to the Game Dev Show. My name is Luke Greenaway, and this week I am joined by a gentleman from the media uh, with an extensive background in video game journalism, the current editor-in-chief at gamesindustry.biz, James Batchelor. James, how's Hello. it going? It's, it's good. Thank you very much for having me on. The pleasure. Pleasure is mine. I'm a bit nervous. I know we just spoke about that off air about uh, <laughs> you, you obviously having an extensive career in journalism. And, um, See, now oh, I'm um, nervous because you're calling it extensive. I'm like, <laughs> I, don't, I don't feel like someone with an extensive career. Do you not think? Oh, no. Do you know what? When I, was, <laughs> when I was looking at your uh, profile, I was like, geez, like, you've been doing this since, well, I don't obviously age you, but like 15 years. And considering how young the games industry is, that's, you know, you're approaching 50% of the games industry's lifetime within that span. I, I had I had one of my team ask me, like, oh, is, is 16 years long enough working in the industry to describe them as a veteran in the article? And I said, yeah, 16 years probably. And then I instantly replied afterwards, actually, no, because I'm 15 years and I don't feel like a veteran. So no, <laughs> take that word out. It's like, no, it's too late. You're a veteran. <laughs> you are. You're definitely a veteran. My age, you're definitely a veteran. I mean, like, it's weird, isn't it? Because we always we talk about veterans on here quite a lot. And it's hard. You try and classify veteran now as like people who've just contributed to the industry, like in mm-hmm. all all their manners and all their art forms. And um, well, yeah, yours has been fantastic. So I'm extremely extremely excited to. Uh, and also, you're a fellow Brit. Whereabouts in the UK are you based? Uh, I'm in Essex. Oh, nice, nice. I'm in Surrey, so it's not. Um, oh, nice. Not too far. No, it's not too far. I mean, it's weird. Obviously, because a lot of our listeners are actually based in the US, Canada. Europe, etc., and um, that would mean nothing to some of them. So uh, <laughs> <laughs> let's crack on. Let's talk about journalism because you you studied journalism at uni. Was games journalism specifically always something you wanted to get into? Yeah, I, I think it was about sixteen when I thought. I, I was trying to work out what I want to do with my life because apparently that's a decision we have to make when we're 16. And at the time I was reading N64 magazine cover to cover every month. And there was one article where they were advertising. They had a little article saying, we need a staff writer. We need someone to join our team and write articles. And I don't know why, like, you know, given how personality led these, these magazines are, I don't know why that's the moment that it clicked. So, oh no, real people do this as a job. And I suddenly thought, well, the one thing I have always liked is writing. And the other mm. thing I've always liked is video games. It makes sense to make that a career. And that yeah. was it. Like from that point, it's like, right, I want to be a games journalist. And, I, and in my head, I wanted to be a consumer journalist. I wanted to go and work on N64 magazine or NGC or whatever it became. I wanted to work on like kind of the, the consumer side of things. I took a slight detour into B2B and I haven't left. Did you ever want to get into like computer science or anything like that? Because a lot of the people we have on that's, where they, they want to get into games and they naturally leads them to computer science and art. I didn't at the time. I do remember like back in IT at school, like they taught us programming in basic and they taught us how mm. to program like a really basic quiz game. And they then spent that summer like making lots of little choose your own text adventures, which were awful and short. But I remember really enjoying it. Like anyone who's even vaguely aware of the games industry, we all have ideas that we think, oh, this would be a great game. I never wanted to get into it as a career because I think I because I've always preferred writing. That's just the one form of communication I think I have. And computer science requires like a lot of um maths and obviously like science, but like you know, a lot of maths understanding. And as much as I did well in maths, I don't necessarily think I understood it. So back then I was like, no, I don't I don't want to get in the making side. I want to write about the games because that's what I'm good at. I look back at it now and I'm like, actually, if I'd have really pushed myself and studied, maybe, maybe mm. I'd be like, because journalism, I don't think James journalism earns quite as much as games development. 
So it's like I, I'm covering all these people who are making ton of money from a ton of products. I'm not. I'm not badly paid. That, that sounds terrible. Like, I'm not badly paid, but like in, <laughs> in general, like journalism isn't the most well-paid field, mm. particularly games journalism. Partly because you know over the years, editors and, and sites and publications, certain publications, know that you're so desperate to write a, about it and so desperate to be in the field that you would work for pretty much nothing. There are some teams out there that can take advantage of that. You did touch upon something then when you said, like, obviously everyone talks about the game. Though. Do you have a specific game in your mind that you're like, this is what I would make? Like- um, I used to, but then um, I, was, I was talking about this recently, like with someone. I used to, in my head, I always wanted to make like um, a spy GTA sort of game. So I, I think this, uh, this came to me like around the time of um, GTA 3 coming out. So I think I wanted like, like something like GTA 3 where it was a spy game, but rather than scripted missions, you have to observe and work out stuff yourself. So the city goes on around you and you might notice a shady character doing something and right, you, you think, right, I'm going to follow him and see what that happens. I actually pitched this to a PAX panel of developers um, a few <laughs> years ago. Like, and I like, because it was one of those panels that like, you know, like pitches your game that. design, uh, game design idea, and we'll tell you whether it'll work. And mine was basically, no, that is just... <laughs> too complex there's too many systems there's too much oh wouldn't it be good and like yeah it's just it's just really clearly one of those like teenage ideas like oh this would be brilliant it's like yeah but it's not practical it's not something that that, i imagine any developers listening are thinking yeah oh yeah the idea of like a massive city thing with lots of different systems lots of different you know ais and stuff going around yeah that's not going to happen yeah that's that's an ambitious first project i think (laughs) it's ridiculous it's right i toyed with because some journalists do go into games development post journalism and i i always Mm. toyed with it but then i did a game jam a couple of years ago and no (laughs) Um, no, we did, like just I, it was it was fun. We made like a little kind of side-scrolling platformer thing. And I know mm. a game jam is not representative of games development in general because obviously you're like you're cramming it into like forty-eight hours. But it was the Journo Dev Swap Game Jam. So you had a bunch of journalists working with students to make a game, and a bunch of developers covering it and writing articles about them. And like we were basically wearing each other's hats. And someone interviewed me during the. Um, during the weekend and i said like basically if i'm writing something like every word i put down is progress those words might be cut out but every word i put down on the page goes towards a finished article whereas games development i can spend an hour half an hour trying to work out how to do something but if there's a semicolon out of place in the code or if i haven't checked a certain box in unity the whole thing falls apart and i mean literally falls apart there's a video on my twitter somewhere of I'd made this like side scrolling level, this really complex maze of platforms and you click the button. And because I hadn't done something that anchors the blocks, the whole level just falls down oh, and just collapses. And like, yeah, I, nice. I clearly am not built for games development. Yeah. I think, I feel like it's a particular mindset. I think it's a particular mindset for journalism though, as well. We'll talk about this a bit later, but I think the responsibility of the media has never been greater. Going back to the start of your career, so you had, and obviously games journalism is such a converted, like, when you're a teenager, like, when you're young, you're you're like, I want to write about games. It's just such an incredible role. And you had, like, a great, I don't know if it's, like, a break. You'll have to tell us about it. But where you, your first position was as an intern at PC Gamer, which is a fantastic publication. I love Mm. PC Gamer. I mean, I love that it's, like, still about. What was this like? What happened? How did it come about? It was brilliant. It was was an eye-opening experience because... 
it made me realize that maybe writing about games isn't as easy as I think it is. So this was, this came about, I, I was studying journalism at university. You're encouraged to get internships and work placements during the, that time. Obviously being university, you don't, you know, you study like what, a third of the year and the rest of it you're spending at home. <laughs> so um, I, I wanted to try and track down opportunities. I Obviously the bulk of the big magazines were down, uh, Future Publishing down in Bath. I went on the website, had a look at what opportunities were available. And I think PC Game was like the only games mag at the time that had a work experience placement. So it was only like one week, but it was really interesting. Like I got to work alongside some really, really cool um, great journalists. I believe Ross Atherton was the editor at the time. I think he'd only just taken over. Uh, Tim Edwards was there, but they were really kind of a welcoming bunch. And I had very kind of work experience tasks. Like I was tasked with um, getting the screenshots for the demo page because there was always a demo disc on the, on the mag. So getting screenshots from the demos and then writing up the copy for those Simple things like screenshots, you think, okay, I'll just take a picture of that. And they were like, no, you've got to think about like the framing, like, you know, what's exciting. Like, this is just, this just looks like a screen. You want to focus on something like, is there an action happening? Is Can you move the camera so that something looks a bit more prominent? It's like, okay. I tried to kind of put my own stamp on things. Like there was, um, there was a World War II game. I cannot remember the name of it, but there was a World War II game on this demo disc. The voiceover was very, okay, chaps, we're going to insert ourselves into this battle zone here. And we're going to fight. And so I wrote <laughs> in that voice and like, and I wrote in that voice in the, in the thing. It's like, those Nazi blighters are, you know, causing trouble. Let's go deal with them. And, and I tried to get that across and they're like, yeah, yeah, but that doesn't, unless you've played the game, you don't know what that's like. And also then it makes the article like really stand out and be really inconsistent with not just the demo section, but the rest of the mag. It's like, okay, well, I won't do that. To be fair, like they're obviously very busy working on a monthly mag, like, so they may not have had as much work for me as you'd hope. But once I'd done the demo page, like they gave me a bunch of dummy features to write. And they're like, you know, look, write some features. We're not necessarily going to publish them, but write them and we can, we can see, give you tips and advice and stuff. And they, they had a section where you look back at a previous game. And I used that as an excuse to write about, I think it was the first Thief, because Thief is like my favorite series of all time. And it's obviously a bit, it's a PC series, PC only series. I'm like, oh, brilliant. So I wrote this massive long piece of like, you know, why Thief is so wonderful and all this. And the feedback I got on that was brilliant because I'd written that purely from my own knowledge of mm. the game and my own knowledge of the community, because I'd only just discovered over the last year that, you know, modding and you could build your own levels and stuff. So I'd written this article, things like, you know, Thief is one of the first games that enables modding, so you can build your own things. And I basically got the page back with, in capital letters, written the word bollocks. <laughs> because obviously it's not the first game, that uh, one of the first games to have modding. It's not even close. And, and <laughs> shamefully, I can never remember which member of the team said this to me, but the biggest lesson that I, I learned was um, they said to me that audience will always know more than you do because you have got so much to cover as a journalist. You've got so many games to... Like, there are people who are going to dedicate themselves to one game, one community, one genre, and you are never going to know as much as they do. So you cannot mm. bluff it. You can't pretend you need to get your facts straight because they will absolutely call you out on it. And weirdly, that lesson more than any of the others has really stuck with me through getting into B2B journalism because the audience definitely knows more than I do because they actually run mm. the damn business. You know, like yeah. the, my audience at GI and uh, developing MCV, like I'm, I'm writing for the developers, the publishers, the execs, the retailers, like anyone, the people who are running this games industry. So if I write something that's not true with what they know, they're going to mm. call out on it or the publication or, or me will just lower in their, their estimations. Like, so you have to know what you're talking about. You have to research yeah. it and you can't just go on what you know as a gamer. 
Yeah. Does that give you anxiety though? Do you worry? Because I, I don't know if I Every can deal day. With that. Every <laughs> day. Yeah. Every day. I'm like, oh, is this right? I'm pretty sure. Like, honestly, I've been covering financial reports for 15 years and I'm still not 100% certain that I am getting it right. I'm fairly confident. But yeah, but there's always that. There's always that worry. There's always that worry. It's like, you know, because I'm not an accountant. I feel like you read through these epic long financial reports and these complex tables where, and, and all these you know executive comments where they are obviously trying their absolute damnedest to make everything look like it's hunky dory, even if the company is falling apart. And you need to look, read behind the lines, like, now hang on, like, just, yeah, it's it's an ongoing challenge. <laughs> Even with the podcast, right? All I've got to do is ask questions and just give my opinion on certain things and like, you know, try and make it entertaining and uh, insightful, I think. And I find that I find it even hard to do like, right, you know, the little when we when we publish it, when we post it, right, even to write like the small paragraph about what the episode's about, just Mm. thinking, God, am I going to get this wrong? And I just don't know how you deal with the stress of thinking (laughs) everyone's reading this from a position of, knowledge and intelligence and i've got to get it right because otherwise not only are they looking for me for knowledge and intelligence but actually i've got to be, i've got to get anything i say which is supposed to be insightful has got to be accurate as well i think you just have to take heart from the fact that like in this day and age if you got something wrong someone will tell you someone has the ability <laughs> to tell you writing very few of those messages come through you're doing okay yeah i think uh, yeah that is true there are a lot of uh, keyboard warriors who are more than happy to draw their swords. Um, But uh, I've got to ask you, so we've got like, obviously going through your career, obviously extremely journalism focused. And within the UK, you've worked for all the major like games, B2B industry publications, like Mm. between PC Gamer and your role now at gameindustry.biz, you had several positions at MCV. How did that come about? Like, what was it like at MCV? MCV was the most frantic time of my career, but really interesting. I learned so much during that point. So I'm not going to give you like the full long, this is your life kind of spiel. But (laughs) after PC Gamer, I went, I was back at uni. During that year, I owe my career to a library book. This is the story I, I, I tell. I went, we'd finished university for the year. I went into uni because I'd forgotten to give a library book back. And as I was going into the library, the course leader was like, oh, James, got something for you. This might be of use. Bear in mind, at that point, I was not meant to be back in university until like September. This is like kind of May-ish. So he spotted me. He's like, I've got something for you. Former student of ours is now an editor at a games magazine. That's something you want to do, isn't it? I was like, yes, spot on. It was a very small magazine called InStock Magazine which was a trade magazine. It went out to retail and it was basically like a monthly guide to here are all the games arriving this month. Here are the marketing plans. Here's what the game is about. And I think the theory was that I have always worried that I'm misrepresenting this, but I was obviously a very young staff writer. I may not have, uh, you know, fully appreciated the big picture, but I think the understanding, the, the, the basic premise was like, you know, this, when, when, mummy goes into game or electronics boutique or HMV or whatever, and asks about, the games and what they can recommend the staff would know because they'd read about them in in stock magazine they would know which games are suitable and so forth i think that was part of the the idea it was just like a, a retailer's guide to what was at games retail that went under during the 2008 crash like so I, I did an internship there and thankfully they liked me enough that they basically offered me a job when i came out of university partly because like the internship was only going to be two weeks but I was enjoying it so much. And I think they were enjoying having free labor so much that they said, look, do you want to stay on for a bit longer? And so I stayed on for the rest of the summer. And then when I got to having to go back to uni, I said, look, 
I only got to university like two, three days a week. Could I do two days a week here and still keep up the work, still you know, build up my portfolio, build up my contracts? And I mean, I came out of university with a year and a half of published work, established contacts in the industry and yeah, an offer as a, a staff writer, which was incredible. And, I was, and again, I, I feel so lucky. Like, I, like there's an element of hard work there, but I never like to take credit mm. for it. They, it is luck. Like I was lucky <laughs> enough that I was in the yeah, university uh, the day that that came through. So I think so, so many people in that situation, they would have just done their three days at uni and be like, well, it's over. Like I had my moment. Hopefully <laughs> the work I've done will be enough to take me through. I think it's great that you're like, guys, I can. I, I love it because I cheated. Like, so one of my, one of, one of the last um, <laughs> segments of my university degree, it was uh, achieving your journalistic goal. And you start the, the semester, you set yourself a goal, what you want to achieve. And I was like, I want to publish as many articles as possible in a magazine. And then by the end of the, the semester, like three, four months later, and I did do some freelancing for like official PSP, official PS2, et cetera. But mostly I've just dumped four months worth of in stock on the magazine. There you go. There you go. I've written like four <laughs> magazines because it was such a small team. I was writing like half the mag. And so I kind, of, I kind of cheated. Like I, you know, I got my degree based on the fact that you know, I'm, go- I'm going to get published knowing full well I was already being published. I feel, <laughs> I feel like I kind of cheated. It still works. I still, it's still, yeah. Anyway, InStock came, um, went under during the 2008 crash and I applied for anywhere. I, I genuinely thought, oh, that's it. That's my games journalism career over. I'm now going to have to work on like a, a local newspaper or something, or, you know, I'm going to have to go back to working at Tesco until another opening arrives. I thought, you know what? I'm going to apply everywhere and see what happens. MCV didn't have any openings at that point, but I knew of them because they, when I was in stock, like they were the rival. They were, you know, they were the one that was bigger and better than us. And so I, th- I just tried my luck as I look, I, I was at in stock, Instabox now gone, as you probably well know. Do you have any vacancies at all? And thankfully, like they did. So Stuart Dinsey, who was the MD of the company that published MCV, I think he actually, I believe I heard that he actually saw the writing on the wall. He, he knew in stock was going to go under. And apparently he told someone, like, right, keep an eye out for James and Will, Will Freeman, who's a freelancer. Keep an eye out for them too, because they're going to be on the market soon and we could do with the extra talent. So mm. I was lucky in that regard. Again, like I had someone like keeping an eye out and I joined MCV as a staff writer and going from a monthly where it was really quite easy because you're basically like writing up information about games and there wasn't as much journalism involved. There wasn't as much like talking to people and interviewing people as there was on MCV. Going from that to a weekly magazine where you are part of a team writing 100 plus pages every week, plus doing like daily news stories and keeping like the, the website up to date, that was absolutely intense. But mm. again, I learned so much. Like I, I think I coasted for the first six months, a year or so, we used to have um, a weekly news meeting. Cause like the, the front of MCV, for those who don't know, MCV was, was back in the day. It's still a website now, but back in the day, it was a weekly newsletter, newspaper, sorry, for the games industry. It was done in the style of a magazine, but we always kind of felt like it was a newspaper. And the first 10 pages were a news section. So you had your big cover story and then you had like, you know, eight or nine pages of smaller news stories, which could, which could range from like, you know, such and such has been hired at this company and why this is an important, uh, you know, appointment to this is what Anamco Bandai is doing to market its latest game. Like, you know, this is, these are where they're putting all the posters. And we had a weekly meeting to fill that because you had that, there was so many slots and you had like two days to fill that because obviously like Wednesday, Thursday, Friday was spent writing all the features. And then you get to like Monday, it's like deadline is tomorrow. What news have we got? And I think I, I, there was one news meeting where I put, I thought, well, there's this press release that we all got on that, so I can write out about that. And the editor at the time, Tim Ingham, took me aside like, this is not good enough. 
this is absolutely not good enough. You need to be constantly thinking about what news is. Think about like mm. every news story we cover on the site. What's the follow-up? What mm. angle is there? Every game that gets announced, is there something of interest there? Is there something unique about it? Every deal or like, and really kind of challenging me to like, not just take the news as it comes and write it up, but think about how you can make news. Think about how you can create a story that no one else has got. Even if mm. it is just person X commenting on thing Y. That's still news. That's still, you know, and particularly if, if person X is relevant and interesting to thing Y, I learned that. And I learned so much in an in, in MCV. Like, I, I, I think that's where I actually started doing journalism. <laughs> it sounds like, I, I, to be honest, it sounds so tough, though. It sounds like such a high pressure. I mean, you read about media being like a high pressure environment. And my, um, my girlfriend, she works for a very large consumer facing private media company. And it sounds so intense for, she works more on the commercial project management side, but it sounds so intense for editorial people because it's an environment that requires fire. I don't know Mm. how to to describe it. It almost requires, not necessarily friction, but it sounds incredibly explosive and incredibly just go, go, go. So momentum based. It it was particularly, Um, particularly, like I say, like given that it was weekly. Like you've got that deadline every Tuesday. Tuesdays were hell. We got through them. Like Tuesday was just hell in just terms of how much was left to do. Because like, unlike much, much, much larger uh, publications where there are newspapers, you know, the newspapers, like people write an article and then they send it off and the sub-editors find the mistakes and then the designers Mm -hmm. lay them out and make it all fit. We did all of it together. We sub-edit and proof our own stories and and each other's stories. We put it into the, um, when we had a designer to like lay out the text, but we have to trim it and cut it and make sure it actually fits. And then you're proofing like the printed out page. It it was constant, but like the fact that it was constant, you didn't lose momentum because there was always something to do. There was no point to take your foot off the gas because there was always something to do. And you were always equally like deadline coming up on Tuesday. You know that come Wednesday, you need to start writing the features for the next week. So you start sending off on like Friday, Monday, trying to get the comments in for the features you're trying to write. It was all well organized. It was all well planned out. We knew what you know, we knew what we were doing, like eight issues ahead. So like, all right, I know that I've got this issue coming up has this special feature, right? I should start thinking about who's going to be in it. You just get in the, the flow of it, I guess. Like it, it becomes just a cycle, like a very weekly cycle. There were the occasional points where it becomes even more intense. So I remember we used to dread, and I dread, I'm making this sound like it's terrible. We, we were genuinely enjoying it because it, it's a challenge. You challenge yourself that you're like, yeah, I can, I can do this. And like, it, it feels like an accomplishment when you get every ma- magazine to print. And when that magazine arrives the next day and you see it all together, it's like, yes, mm. look, well, look at what we made. I knew you're getting that, yeah. that sense like, every week. Bank holidays always used to cause a problem because obviously like weekly issue, we've got five working days. But if you've got a bank holiday, that's one day less that you have to make a mag that's a four-day issue and four-day issues were always just manic the worst one was i remember when i think it was will and kate got married there was like a day off for that and then there was a bank holiday weekend i think they they got married like the last friday of april so that was a day off and then the monday after was the first monday of may so that was a bank holiday and then before that you'd had easter so that's a friday and a monday off We've now looking at a two-day issue, a five-day issue, a five-day issue, and a two-day issue. So we did four four four-day issues back to back. And it's like Mm. that because that made it manageable. And it was it was it was it was mad. Like so um my colleague Chris String, who was I think he was deputy editor above me, and then he became editor at MCB and he works with me at um GI. He always used to say that um work is a vacuum. 
because somehow we managed to do four four day issues, each of which was a hundred plus pages. No problems at all. Like we, you know, hour or two late for deadline, but it still went to press. It still went to press like on the day it was meant to go to press. And then there was one point where weirdly, like I think it all lined up and we had a seven day issue. And you think, oh, wow, you know, we've just done four, four issues back to back. We'll, we'll have three days off. There's be no problem. No, that last, day, that last day, we were all at manic. Like, it's just no matter what, how much time you've got, work will fill yeah. it. It's just, it's mad. Yeah. Is it, yeah, it is insane like that. It's, do you know what? And I don't, it's not exclusive to journalism or the games industry, but when anyone joins like PTW, so like, um, you know, the company I work for, mm. when anyone joins, um, after a couple of weeks, they're like, is it always this busy? And you're like, yeah, <laughs> yes. yeah, this is, yes, it, it this is. is games. This is just the games industry. It's so, it's growing so quickly and it's mm. so vibrant and it's, there's so many stories. And I, I guess as a journalist, you must, you know, and obviously I don't mean it's in a disrespectful way, like, but you could be working for like, you know, Caravan Weekly or something, or like a mobile homes, like, um, you know, like paper or magazine. And it's like, how much is that going to change? But in the games industry, there is just a million things to write about. I've got to ask, because obviously your career obviously continued from MCB and you went on to New Bay Media. Were you the editor of Develop? Is that correct? Yeah. So MCB was published by Intent Media when I joined. Mm. During my time there, New Bay Media bought Intent Media. That wasn't a change of company, as that, that was a change of management. Okay. Develop was MCV's sister publication. Uh, we actually, yeah, we sat on the same bank of desks. And yeah, no, an, an opportunity came up. Like a, a member, Will Freeman, Will Freeman actually, who came over from InStock with me, he had been editor of um, Develop and he decided to leave and go do freelance things. And the opportunity came up for me to move over. And mm-hmm. I was facing kind of a, a, I was deputy editor at the time on MCV and like, Chris String was editor and there was no indication that he was going to go anywhere anytime soon. So I was like, right, my, I'm, I'm stuck here progress-wise, but if I move over to develop, I get to be editor. And so I took the opportunity and it was, it was amazing. And that, again, that was fascinating. MCV was always about the business and the publishing and the retail side of the games industry. It wasn't about the actual nitty-gritty mm. making of the games. Develop was purely about making the games. It got into real technical stuff like engines and frameworks and middleware and all these, all these things. I learned more about how games are made. I learned more. I wouldn't, I wouldn't even profess to be an expert on it, but I learned a lot more about the actual nature of behind the scenes of the industry. Again, that was fascinating. Like I always loved talking to developers and learning more about the studios, learning more about like you know the, the hubs where all the talent are. There are certain like cities in the world, and particularly in the UK, where there are just like so many games developers within you know spin mm-hmm. distance of each other. I enjoyed Develop, I think, a bit more than MCV. MCV was great. It was so frantic. Develop was a little bit calmer because obviously it was a monthly rather than a weekly. So it was back to that kind of monthly cadence and that putting a magazine together. And again, like just that pride of like when you go to press and the magazine arrives like you know, a couple of days later. My deputy editor, Craig Chappell, always used to laugh at me. But like when you're working on individual pieces for a magazine, you think, okay, right, this is good, but it's okay. This this one's okay. Yeah, this one's okay. But when you see them all together in a magazine, it's like, actually, this works really well. Like, look at that. We've gone from that piece to that piece and that piece. This is a strong magazine. He's like, you're always surprised. Every month, you're always yeah. surprised that we've done a good magazine. Like, you're the one who's planning the damn thing. It was good. Like, and, and yeah, I, I, I wrote some really good fun pieces on um, on Develop. I got to meet so many kind of interesting people on that because um, – the, the higher you go up the the ladder, the more opportunities you get to actually go out and meet the people. And because when MCV, like for most of my time on MCV, I was either staff writer or deputy editor. So with an editor and a publisher above me, 
things like go to e3 or gdc or whatever that just there's no they go to those and i stay in the office and hold the fort and make sure everything gets done develop was really good like kind of having more opportunities to explore another side of the industry i loved it yeah i think that's great is was there like even more pressure because obviously like the technicalities of development were they greater oh, than the technicalities of distribution and retail? Yeah, massively, massively. Because again, this really is the pinnacle of your audience knows a lot more <laughs> than you do. So there was that. And there was the fact that developers had been going such lo- so long. Like, MCV and Develop were both really long-running brands, but MCV was very UK-focused and was very well-regarded in the UK. It had some international presence, but it was well-known in the UK. Develop was a little bit more international. We had readers a bit further afield. Develop Magazine used to be at GDC. So developers mm-hmm. are there picking up and you think, wow, like the, you know, the people going and picking this up. Like, and I was very kind of conscious of, it was the first time I was an editor. So the buck stops with me. Like you know, I, I'm actually now responsible for not just like making sure everything runs and everything, you know, everything gets done, but also that everything gets done to a good quality. And like yeah. Will had done such great work ahead of me as said everyone else would work before him. It's like, wow, Develop's got a kind of a reputation that I really need to kind of uphold. I kind of put pressure on myself to do that. I think I managed it. I think it did well. <laughs> so. Yeah, I think, I mean, what I was going to ask you, so what, what happened? Because you went to games industry biz. How long were you at Develop before the move came about? And- so I'd been at MCV five years, just under five years. Then I was at Develop about three and a half years. Basically, as happens with some acquisitions, new management brings new expectations, new pressures. New Bay Media was much more focused on basically getting as much money out of the brands as possible. I'm not going to get like terribly unprofessional and go into the into the internet of it, but basically they wanted us to do more, but with no more support and no more resource and no more reward. The first year that I joined Develop, we ran six pub quizzes. They used to do three. This is like within the first year, six pub quizzes, and we used to run three. We did the first ever Develop Live conference because we want to try running a conference. We did three Develop an audience with, with, which were like an evening summit. First time we'd ever done those. We did three or four supplements, extra magazines that come with the magazine, like bonus publications, which we only used to do one a year. And then obviously the monthly mag and then on the website. And yeah, Develop was a small team at that point. We only had two, two and a half writers on the magazine, including myself. And we got to like November and... Management was like, right, so what else are you going to do to to deliver this year? Like, And they set us a target. And I'm, I was like, we've just done four times the amount that we've ever done before, and you want more. Uh, that was part of it. And then partly it was it was a logistical thing. It was um, they were moving the company to London, and they weren't increasing anyone's salaries to account for traveling into London. And it's like, I can't afford to do this. So mm-hmm. I, I will look elsewhere. I'll see what I can do. Yeah, we got into conversations with uh, Rupert Lohman, who was uh, MD of Gamer Network. And the opportunity came up to come to Games Industry Biz and do some of the things that we, we wanted to do. So it was Chris and I were there, you know, talking about what we could do with a new B2B brand. And mm. Rupert basically said, well, why not come to do this as a GI? We've got an established brand. We've got a, a big team, like, come over here and try something new. It's like, yeah, actually, you know what? Yes, it was the move that made the most sense. Like, the experience I'd had on MCV and Develop, GI was the natural place to go. It's the only, I think it's the only other UK-based B2B publication that I could have written for. And as much as, you know, like, teenage me had dreamed of working for Nintendo magazines, like, by this point, magazines were slowly diminishing. The number of magazines were slowly diminishing. I don't think there were any Nintendo magazines by this point. And... As much as I wanted to be a consumer journalist when I started, 
I enjoyed being a B2B journalist very much more because it was, I, I found it more interesting because you're learning so much about the industry and what it, you know, what makes it tick. Consumer journalists do an, an absolutely brilliant job. And I love reading kind of some of the consumer sites, but it's very much kind of about the, the game is experience. It's about, Hey, this game, cool game is coming out. Hey, this is why you should love this game. Hey, this is cool. This is how you do this part of this game. Like, it's all very kind of about the moment to moment experience of playing the game. Mm. But we're talking about how like, you know, distribution is changing and how indies are you know finding opportunities to to make business for themselves and how you know smaller and new publishers are coming up and how self-publishing is an option how vr is you know taking form at the, at the time you know like what that means for the potential for game design like it was just a much kind of broader picture thing rather than just hey this is how cool video games are to play which i know yeah. a lot of consumer sites do more than that but i just I, the, the business side just fascinated me so much by this point that i was like you know what i'm, I'm sticking with it it's very important that publications like GI exist to constantly tell that story on a much bigger scale. Obviously, a lot of people I know, like within the industry, read GI every morning, right? You log mm. in, you, you go on GI, catch up with everything, and then you're like, you know, you begin your day. And it's, that's not even just like a plug. It's just, it is in the UK specifically, and I don't know about the rest of the world, but it is definitely the publication you go to. And obviously, it shows it's doing what it should be because that's, I'm assuming that is what you want to achieve. It is. It absolutely is. I I never like to take that for granted. I never like to assume that people read GI. I never like to assume that people know what GI is. So (laughs) so, I've gone to interview like quite high up people. I'm I'm from games and shop biz. We're a B2B publication. Like, yeah, I know we read you every day. It's like, okay, thank you. And I never, I'm I'm just quite humble. I don't like to assume, but yeah, yeah, but the amount of people that that I interview and say, love GI, it's the site that I read. Like you say, the start I read every day to kind of keep up with what's going on. We kind of like to think of ourselves as almost, um, it's a filter. It's a filter. Like there's so much games news out there mm. in general. Like if you're looking at the broadest spectrum of the games media, there's so much news happening all the time. Our site is very much the filter. This is what's relevant to the decision makers, the people who are in games. This is what you need to know if you are in the business of games. You don't need to know that Game X has been dated. Game Y has been announced. Game Z is going to get DLC. You don't need to know that. You do need to know that this new studio has formed in Montreal. This new fund has been Mm. set up and is looking for indies and VR developers. This new tax break is coming to, you know, the tax breaks are coming to this market. That's what you need to know because that's going to help you run your business. And that's what we aim to deliver. And I, I think we do that. Yeah, hundred percent. I think. Do you know what's like very interesting is it's like quite unique in that sense. I'm sure there are other publications globally. There are publishers globally that do that, but it's very unique in the way that it's presented and it's very consumable and it's very good at giving you those headlines, but also giving you that data and that mm-hmm. analytical insight when you actually dive deep into it. Coming back to you, like personally, you're obviously editor in chief there and clearly doing a great job. Um, <laughs> but you're, obviously, you're still like relatively young. Where are you going to go from here? Like, what is the next step? You've got Greg Castleman, who's been on like a few weeks ago. He obviously went from like similar role at GameSpot and then obviously created Supergiant or went off to Supergiant and obviously made some games. What about you? Like, where do you see the next step? I have no idea. I genuinely have no idea. Genuinely, I feel very lucky. to. So I've only been editor-in-chief six months. So I don't plan to go anywhere anytime soon. I'm just, I'm enjoying working at GI. I've I've been at GI five years now, and that's now the longest publication. I think this goes back to like, you know, what we said at the start about extensive career. I think because it's been in such little bites, it's like a couple of years at Instock, five years, uh, almost five years at MCV, a couple of years at Dunlop, five years at GI. It feels quite broken up. So I don't feel like I've been in any one place for too long. So I still feel like a beginner. 
which yeah. is probably not the thing to say when you're in charge of the damn thing. <laughs> um, <laughs> I don't know. I don't know where I want to go from here because I, I'm still enjoying GI. I'm still really enjoying what we do. It's such an interesting time of the industry at the moment because the nature of what we cover has changed so much like just from when I've joined. It feels like there is a lot more, obviously you're still covering like, you know, new studios, new funds, development, change stuff, but there's so much more scrutiny over how the industry is operating at the moment. Loot boxes, you know, the Epic versus Apple stuff and Fortnite and third-party payments and walled gardens, NFTs and blockchain, metaverses, you know, VR, indie, you know, indie publishing still is, you know, indies is always a fascinating scene as to what what's happening there, what the opportunities are for there. AR is making a big thing now, or certainly if you believe Niantic. Like there's so many interesting things as to what's happening in this industry. Subscription services are changing things, you know, like things like Game Pass. How does that change the game? We know how that changed the game for consumers because you pay X amount to Microsoft and you get all of the games. But what does that mean for developers? What does that mean for publishers? What does that mean for opportunities? Does that affect the perception of value of video games? There's so much to be covering <laughs> that I don't think I, I need to go anywhere yet. So <laughs> honestly, I've not thought about it. So When you summarize it like that, yeah, it is crazy. That's without even mentioning the pandemic, the effect of the pandemic, like, you know, the, oh, yeah. the impact it's had on, on obviously like uh, spending on games has increased because everyone's been at home and it, like, how do we retain that audience? You've had people get into games for the first time, people buying, mm-hmm. people were buying consoles like Nintendo Switch, obviously like Animal Crossing, the timing of that really, that is probably the best time to release ever. Just ahead of a lockdown, <laughs> we're going to release this cozy little game that anyone can play. The amount of yeah. people that have bought Switches that not just never had a Nintendo console, but never had a console before, and are now, mm. you know, how do you retain that audience? How do you how do you keep them back? The impact on development and, like, you know, the delays we've seen, like, what impact is that having on company growth? How are companies staying alive? Remote working, hybrid. We've seen a lot of studios are shifting to these hybrid models. Like, you know what? We worked okay during the pandemic and during lockdown, so we can keep, yeah. we can allow people more flexibility. We can hire people from all around the world. People don't have to move to Montreal to work for a Montreal studio. You know, people like experiment with four day weeks. It's just there's so much happening. Yeah. So, <laughs> there is, like, so I feel like you summarized uh, you summarized a big portion of it in the in that sixty seconds as a journalist right as a like a media represent like you know the largest b2b media platform in the uk for the games industry i feel like journalism is almost like journalists are like the lawful neutral type right like you you've got to keep the balance you've just got to like relay the news do you ever find that you're caught up in moral complexities that people just don't read about and they only see like a tiny bit of the actual story that's something that we're working on a lot at the moment. And as you say, like so much has come out. The moral complexity is honestly like, it depends on the story, obviously. The main thing that we certainly try to ensure is that in any given situation, any given story, every side has had its, has said its piece. There are so many allegations coming out about certain companies and you can't just say this company is awful because these people say it is. You can't do that. Mm. You you have to get that company side of side of the matter, or at least try to get that company side of the matter. Companies don't always comment on things. You know, allegations against individuals. You have to reach out to that. You should not run. These accusations have come against this person mm. with until you have reached that person and given them the chance to reply. You know, a decent period of time to reply to, you know, like to, to address it. So that's something that's always difficult. And you just have to take it by, you know, story by story. You have to kind of take yourself out of it. We all have our own views on what is and isn't right, is and mm. isn't the future of the industry. To an extent, you have to take yourself out of it and you just have to kind of present the facts. 
we always trust our readers are intelligent enough to make up their own minds. We don't have to write. This has happened. These allegations have been made. This company is doing this. Then you know this this taking adopting this questionable business model or question. We don't have to write that in a way that's like this is bad and this is why it's bad and you should hate this because it's bad. We don't do yeah. that because we trust our readers to read between the lines of. Mm. Well, I don't. I don't agree with that. I don't like the way that's been handled. I don't think that should be what that company is doing. I was going no, to say, because no. you, you, come, you come across as like a very passionate, compassionate, especially about the games industry, you can really sense it, like chatting to you. Obviously, when you read things that you disagree with that are affecting the games industry negatively, when you write articles, is it quite hard take it? Because I would, I, I'm a very emotive person. Do you struggle to take sometimes like the emotion out of what you've written so it is as neutral as possible? I kind of trained myself on MCB and Develop to not have a personality. That's so why, that's why it comes out on uh, on personality uh, on podcasts is because I don't have a personality in my writing. This is this is me unleashed. But like, no, I, it's it can be difficult, and sometimes like if it's something that we agree on, if something that the team agrees on, the thing you have to remember is unless you're writing an opinion piece, which we've all done, and, and I've I've written opinion pieces. I think I I, I wrote a massive rant on. I, I very rarely have an opinion. I think I feel strongly enough about to to write an opinion piece, largely because I'm again it's that you know audience knows more than you do. It's like oh maybe I should keep my opinion to myself. But I wrote one about um, Ubisoft did Assassin's Creed Mister Men books about the characters. Oh. And I know it's merchandise and I know it's aimed at the the core fans, but my kids are into Mr. Men books and I don't think that's an appropriate merchandising thing. And it wasn't picking on just this. It was picking on things like the Call of Duty mega blocks and the fact there are definitely child-sized Call of Duty and Battlefield hoodies out there and marketing these games that are quite clearly 18 rated and adults, you know, targeted at adults, but merchandising them for children. I don't mm. agree with. So I wrote an opinion piece on that. But in terms of actually covering the you know the basic stories and so forth, you don't. You just present the facts. You can write your own opinion in like an, in a clearly marked opinion piece. That's fine. Your opinion does not necessarily represent that of the whole team. And you can, I can't remember a specific example, but I swear we've had um, examples where one member of the team has written an opinion piece and someone's written a counterpiece because they disagree. They have a different opinion because that's healthy. That's healthy. I love that. That's debate. I think that's really cool. If there's an occasion where the whole team agrees and we talk about this behind the scenes, then yeah, we will put something together. And like, so Brendan Sinclair, who's our managing editor, he did an absolutely brilliant piece earlier in the year about blockchain and NFT and why we're not accepting pitches on NFTs and blockchains because- Short versions kind of at the moment, they are so environmentally destructive. They are so unproven as a technology. They're unproven as a use case in gaming. And they're so open to kind of scams and fraud. And the vast majority of the people who are really pushing these are the ones who stand to benefit from them. You usually get you know, the amount of uh, opinion, but you get people like emailing us, you know, pitching, oh, we'd love to write an opinion piece about why NFTs are the future of gaming and player-owned economies are the future of gaming. And then you just have to, uh, the briefest Google of who it is who's writing this piece. And now they happen to own a blockchain gaming company. Well, of course <laughs> you're going to say that, you know. So Brendan wrote this great piece about why we're not accepting pitches and the whole team read it and the whole team like kind of chipped in and, and like, yeah, I agree with this. And that's our stance. That's a team stance. Mm. So there are occasions where that can work. There are occasions where you can be like, you know what? No, morally, we don't think this should be the future of the industry. We don't think the technology is there yet. So morally, we are not going to give it any more air or oxygen than it needs mm. because it's already getting more than enough attention. It does not need yeah. it from our site. So yeah, there are occasions when you can take a stance on things. 
Honestly, like talking to you and like diving into your role and to you is like your character. I just can't imagine anything more stressful than being a journalist in the games <laughs> industry. Like, I really can't. Like deadlines, you've got to know everything. This incredibly challenging moral minefield you have to navigate. Have you ever had a story or have you ever written a story and you, it's blown you away? Like, what's the craziest story you've ever had to report on in like your entire career in journalism? <laughs> The craziest headline I have ever been linked, not linked to, but like it was on a publication I was on, but I could not take credit for the headline or the um, or the story itself. But it's still just the craziest story I've ever been aware of. Pokemon players in poo fight scandal. Oh, my God. There was, there, was a, there was a Pokemon tournament in 2012 where yeah. the winning team after the tournament, completely separate from the event, the winning team went around throwing feces at the hotel doors of other players. Oh. And I just don't understand how that was a thing. Where how that? Oh, yeah, that's, that's one of the that's one of the craziest. I, <laughs> to bring the tone back up, oh. I always find the the legal disputes can sometimes be quite crazy. So the Epic versus Apple dispute yeah, that's absolutely damn. mad. Like the idea that Epic wants Fortnite to be using Apple's system but not paying Apple's commission. As mm-hmm. like you know, you want all the benefits of being on iTunes, but you don't want to have to pay for it. I absolutely do see their point of like what's regulating how much platform holders charge developers. They profit greatly from the success of games and particularly things like Fortnite, which is such a smash hit. But just that, and then covering that court case, that went down some serious tangents, like the whole what is a game. And like, you know. Yeah, I the, remember that. The long debates about what a game is, the battle of the experts with people like kind of proving, like using the same points, but like to prove their own case. The the notion that, that that Fortnite is a metaverse, not a game. Like Brendan wrote a great piece. It was just a, a wrap up of all the weirdest things said in that trial. It was <laughs> just is it, crazy. Is it true that like Apple are making more money though from game, more game revenue than any publisher now? Is that accurate? I'm pretty I, sure I read that not long ago. I wouldn't be surprised. Yeah. I think it's one of those things that like someone has estimated, someone close to the data has estimated, but we haven't got like a concrete figure on. But I wouldn't be surprised. Mobile is by far and away the biggest market. I think you get more downloads on Android, but you get more revenue on Apple. Like Apple players just spend more money. And Apple yeah. is obviously, the, so that makes Apple the biggest mobile market um, ecosystem in terms of revenue. So yeah. Yeah, I would not be surprised if it earns more than I think. Yes, yeah, so I, I think you're right. Someone pointed out it earns more from games than like EA, Activision, Ubisoft, and Take Two combined. I wouldn't be shocked. It's so crazy! Like it's mad that that's even a thing. And yeah, I guess from 15 years ago when you came into games, how has it changed? How has games journalism changed? Like specifically games journalism over the last 15 years? Because you got, man, I imagine it's so much harder now. It is. With, yeah, there's there's so much yeah. to keep up with. B2B feels like it hasn't changed too much. It's the the opportunities we're writing about has changed. The industry has changed, but the actual process mm. of journalism hasn't changed too much. The sort of way we are working is not too different to how I was on MCV. It's still about talking to the people in the know, getting an insight and getting you know, looking deeper at business, yeah, business practices. There's just more business practices and more business models. There's more markets and sub-segments of those markets to look at. In terms of games journalism in general, and I, and I preface this by like, I'm not a, a consumer journalist, but I am a reader of consumer journalism. That's changed dramatically. We've gone beyond just the old review preview cycle of you've got so many kind of more emotive pieces, people like trying to write about their experiences with games and their thoughts on 
tying games into personal experiences. You've got more long form content has been coming back over the last few years, which I'm quite happy as a fan of the written word. The big one is obviously like the games last longer. Journalism used to cover a game, right? This game has been announced. Here's a preview of this game. Here's a review of this game. Maybe here's a walkthrough and that's it. But now like, you know, games have changed. Games have now like ongoing, evolving things. So you're, you've got people still writing about Minecraft. You're still writing about Fortnite, still writing about Pokemon Go. Pokemon games are what come out five, maybe six years old. People still writing about how the community are interacting, how, you know, how the game is changing. So mm. journalists, certainly on the consumer side, I do not envy them because they've got to not only got to keep up with what's new and what's next and what's coming, they've also got to keep up with what people are still playing. We're going to be getting like Forza Horizon pieces for like three or four months now easily. And, you know, if it takes off, like we, we, people still write about Forza Horizon. Like there are just enough games that last longer in the minds and the lives of players. And that's what journalists will write about particularly mm. as well like with the, the the last couple of years with so many delays i don't know the intricate details but i know that other sites at my company so eurogamer vg247 all those i know they were looking at taking a long hard look at right well there are no games fewer games coming out what do we write about what do we target things like roblox not as many consumer sites cover roblox because it's just it just doesn't fit with that traditional cycle but that game has got such a massive audience and so many interesting things are happening in that ecosystem so as stressful as being a b2b journalist is i'm so <laughs> glad i'm not a consumer journalist what do you think of early access reviews like personally i read a couple recently uh moments of darkest dungeon 2 and i just thought man this is such a stretch because this is going to change i get I, I get it with yeah. like games as a service and games as a platform like fortnite because they can evolve quite a lot and mmos evolve quite an incredible amount over the space of like three four years look at final fantasy and how that journey as an mmo is probably one of the best stories from a game development and success stories that mm. there actually is over the last 15 years but early access reviews it's supposed to change a lot so you're i think you're providing preconceptions of a product that is nowhere near finished i think it depends on how you handle it it depends on how you're doing the review and what the game is so something like mm. Baldur's gate 3 Baldur's gate 3 is yeah. going to be in early access for some considerable time um <laughs> there are Baldur's gate fans who are chomping up the bits to play a new Baldur's gate an early access review will tell them whether it's going to live up to their expectations yet mm. providing you're not reviewing it as here's the final product like you're providing your review and it with the context of this is a working process. This is what they've accomplished so far. This is what they should work on. I think early access reviewing is okay because ultimately you're, you're serving, you're serving the viewer. The, the ultimate purpose of a review is should I buy this game regardless mm. of whether or not it's only in, in early access or not, because particularly like, you know, early access games that charge, should I buy this mm. game? Like, is, is it, is it so early that it's broken or is it, playable with the caveat that it's going to change a lot over time that's something mm. people still want to know and therefore that's still something that, that is relevant writing about i try and imagine it in other mediums like entertainment mediums like the first 30 minutes of a film and then being like, yeah that's a bit weird and yeah but um we talk about the change in the industry there's a lot more money involved now like a ridiculous yes. amount of money do you think this has helped or do you think it's actually burdened the industry because yeah, I mean, it's quite a broad question, but just it's, interested to know your thoughts. <laughs> it's a combination, isn't it? Like, you know, the fact that video games now is bigger than, and has been for a long time, bigger than music and film combined. Like mm. that shows the growth the industry has had. And like, we're reaching more people now than ever, particularly if you include mobile. Typically when we say games are true, we mean console and PC. 
because that's just traditionally what we avid gamers and we avid video game enthusiasts we think of. But if you include mobile, like you know, it, it's a pastime that is mainstream and has been mainstream for a long time. Mm. The money that brings with it, it's kind of twofold. On the one hand, you have more money funding much bigger, much more impressive, much more advanced products. The budgets of AAA games now. Mm. If the games industry hadn't grown to the point where it was earning this much money, if it was you know reaching millions and millions of players, you wouldn't have things like Last of Us, Ghost of Shima, Red Dead Redemption Two, like Horizon Forbidden West, all these like massively really mm. incredible games. You wouldn't have them because there wouldn't be the money and the justification for them. The downside being that as the industry has grown and companies have grown to the point where companies have gone public and have got shareholders, shareholders brings a whole other expectation with it. Shareholders expect companies to grow, expect results to improve. And therefore the big companies become driven as much by what will please shareholders, what will satisfy the, you know, the the bottom line, what will improve the bottom line than what will make a good game, what advances the art form. The AAA space, obviously, is, is it all plays it very, very safe. If a game is not like designed to monetize, then the game is at least designed to appeal to as many people as possible. I don't want to pick on Ubisoft, but I'm gonna. So the Assassin's Creed series, the Assassin's Creed series was very much kind of stealth driven, social stealth, and that appealed to me because I'm I'm really into my stealth games. And as the series has grown and as the audience has grown, it's branched out into like naval battles and you know and yeah, you know, bigger open worlds. And now you've got to the point where it's pretty much The Witcher because The Witcher sold really well. And that's therefore that's where they've gone with the money. It's now just very generic open action. I can't remember the last time an Assassin's Creed game felt like you were an assassin. Like Far Cry, like yeah, you know, Far Cry again, like you know, Far Cry has, has become bigger and better and is more about the chaos and and more about like kind of you know, look at all the crazy wacky things you can do. And then you know, like both games have their these in-game stores, so you can buy boosters, you can buy things. And I'm not picking on Ubisoft, it sounds like I am, but like other companies do this as well. The big one, Avengers. Marvel's Avengers, Square Enix, like that has been built around. That should be really cool. The idea of, hey, here's this co-op game that's a little bit Destiny, but but you're the Avengers. And when you play online, you are the squad of Avengers. You're not all playing like the same, pretty much the same character, but with slightly different abilities. Mm. You are completely different characters. You're part of an Avengers fight. That should be an amazing, fun, creative experience. But it's been built on that Destiny model of, right, let's grind for loot. Let's grind for items. And let's drive the player to want to keep on getting those items and getting those um, and those customizations and those progress. And it becomes more about the mechanic of progressing and therefore that opens up monetization opportunities than it does about the experience of, hey, we're a fucking superhero team. Yeah, I think, do you know what? I think you hit the nail on the head with um, playing it safe. Like, and obviously you're going to play it safe if you know something's going to make money and you're a shareholder, you're going to play it safe. But I do think it leaves all the innovation to the indies. And I think, Mm. you know, when you think about what your favorite game is, whenever you ask people what their favorite games are, they always recall games from like 15, 20, 25 years ago because at the time it was innovative. Whether it was a narrative-led experience, whether it was GoldenEye, whether it was Zelda, Ocarina of Time. Um, for me, it was playing Tech Torment, which is like a very old Black Isle Studios game. The thing about them is they're all... I don't think anyone in 10, 15 years is going to turn around and be like, my favourite game of all time was, you know, Call of Duty Vanguard. Or, yeah. um, you know, what? my favourite WoW expansion was Battle Royale for Azeroth. Prime example, like so, um, Wesley and Paul over at um, Eurogamer reviewed Call of Duty Vanguard, and I think his concluding sentence was, "I'm enjoying it, 
but I'm just not impressed by it. And I really think that's where AAA games has become has gone to. I use Red Dead Redemption Two as the example. Weirdly, that game impressed me, but I didn't enjoy it. I think you kind of get either. You, you get either. You don't really get both. Like that game was incredible like the graphics the size of the world the attention to detail the interactions you can have with everyone but it's so sluggish and so scripted and so painful to play that it's yeah. not fun i played red dead online for the first time a week ago mm. with a group of friends we all played for the first time and it was amazing because it's not scripted yeah. and it's just so that's much better i actually i've actually got to the stage where i just like playing the um the online version and just yeah. mucking around in the world because that's yeah, more fun. It's crazy. I think the problem with AAA publishers, honestly, is I think they're brilliant. They do they they serve a brilliant role, but I think the issue with them is it's very evident when you see people who don't play games making the decisions on the games that yeah. those companies should make. I'm more intrigued by like the last few years, which is a real wave of AAA people leaving and forming their own studios. I feel like I've covered that sort of story more in the last two, three years than I have the rest of my career. And it's like, right, give it three, four years until they've actually managed to get their first game out or better yet, their second game. Like the first game is always to kind of fund the next one and to kind of establish the company because <laughs> you because you can't set up a company and spend six, seven years making a masterpiece. You need to get something out to generate, you know, to, to pay, the, you know, pay the bills. That new wave of developers we're starting to see rise, independent AAA developers, like I'm kind of hoping for like some future respawns and that sort of thing. So we'll see. Yeah, that's yeah, like respawn. Oh, yeah, it's so interesting because it's like everyone thinks the same thing. It, it, this is what I find fascinating with the games industry. You must see it all the time. So many people have these conversations and think the same thing. Yeah, not much changes. We've kind of skirted around this just now, but it might be different. What would you change about the industry if you could pick just one thing? I would love to, this is a personal choice, I would love to see more AAA non-violent games because the vast majority of AAA games, AAA action games are, I mean, okay, you've, sports and driving games, they are by nature non-violent. Yeah. But everything else, all the open world games, all the shooters, all the, you know, the immersive sims, everything like that, you know, it feels like the vast majority of time you spend in AAA games is spent making things dead. Like you said, like so many innovations are coming from Indies. So many Indies are making like really good games that last eight, 10, 15 hours. I've only just shamefully discovered East Shade, which is this wonderful, like Elder Scrolls style, semi open world, like, you know, little, lovely little adventure where the main mechanic is you paint pictures. You frame a section, you know, it's like taking a screenshot, but it becomes a, a, a canvas in the world and it becomes a little watercolor painting and you give that to someone to cheer them up or you give it to the, someone to complete a quest or you sell them to earn a commission. Like, and like that's the main mechanic is exploring and painting and this creative expression. That's a really kind of interesting game. And like, it's great for the budget they had, like it's really well accomplished, but I look at it, I think, imagine this, but on the scale and the budget of like a Skyrim, you know, like I'd love to see something like that. I mean, that's really cool. It's not normally, it's not answer expected at all, actually, but I think it's really cool. It's so interesting, isn't it? Because my favourite, <laughs> it's a violent game. Well, my favourite two games of like the recent years are definitely Hades and God of War. Mm. And God of War is incredibly violent, but I love that it's an open world. I'd actually no. like to see publishers stop making so many open world games. Oh, like, so many. Make them just a yeah. bit more like tighter because then you can focus on the narrative. It's not make it an open world, but don't make it so scripted. This is something that's been bothering me. Like every open world is like, yeah, it's a sandbox, but to actually progress, you've got to 
go to a person and do a mission. I always think back to... Um, <laughs> it's a weird, isn't it? Do you know what I mean? I always think back to the original Crackdown. The original Crackdown was yeah. so ahead of its time. It's like, right, you've got nine targets in that world. Go find them. That's it. That's the game. There's no scripted missions. There's no cutscenes. Like you don't have to talk to this person to gain access to this. But you've got access to all three islands of that city from the word go. You don't have to like, there's no gates. There's difficulty barriers. Obviously, you can't go straight to the harder island. You will die. But it's about just working out your way to kill, I remember the pitch for Ghost Recon Wildlands that you know there are no scripted missions. You just have targets and you have to find them. It's like that appeals. That appeal. Like I, I don't want a, a game where, yeah, it's massive, but I'm still go to the quest giver, mm. go do a thing, come back to the quest giver, go do a thing, go do a quest giver. Like just I, I want a more systems driven world where I decide what I want to do. Is yeah. why like when I'm playing like the Far Cry games, for example, for me, I complete a Far Cry game when I've uh, liberated all the outposts. Because I can do yeah. them in any order. I can do them how I want to. It's like, right, there you go. That's my game done. Job done. Yeah. I mean, for me, like, I, Far Cry 3 peaked is where Far Cry peaked for me because of the narrative was much better. So I want to summarise, like, I want to summarise. I want you to summarise, if you can, in, like, one sentence. And your career so far, right, in, in games. And to give you, I don't know, like, an example, I asked Lorne Lanning, the founder of, uh, of World Inhabitants, the same question, and he said, brutally enlightening. Um, so, <laughs> like, have you got like a summary or several words that you would be able to? I did. I did have one written down, but it's not as good as that. Like, I, I, not what I originally planned, but all the better for it. Oh, that's great! I I've I've that. learned so so much about the industry. I've 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 found things that I genuinely didn't think I'd find interesting or like, you wouldn't have, I, like I say, when I first started this, I was like, I want to write about games. I want to write about how, how cool Nintendo games are. <laughs> and I, I can still do that if I want to, but I'm writing about so much more interesting stuff. The games industry is like the biggest entertainment industry in the world. It's absolutely fascinating. And I'm kind of not on the front line as, as such. I'm in the thick of it, kind of watching it grow, watching it evolve and charting its, its course. Mm. James, it's brilliant. Oh, God, it's been such a pleasure. Thank you, you so much for having us on. Thank you. I really um, do appreciate it. Yeah, it's been fantastic. And then, do you know what? I've, I've enjoyed this so much because it's like I, you just, there's just a raw passion there. And it's, it's uh, I respect obviously what you do. I think it must be incredibly challenging. And I think it's one of those things that I think good journalism is almost taken for granted. So, yeah, just a quick note. Um, obviously, the opinions you've heard today are of James and my own and do not represent our employers. <laughs> and if you tried to reach out, or drop us an email, please do, at uh, gamedevshow at ptw.com. James, uh, hopefully see you soon. Thank you. No worries. Thank you so much. Game over.